A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place he, and saw him, passed by, had passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. The Gospel of the Lord. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. For we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's a delight to be with you again this week. Uh, there is no fourth part to the set that we completed last week. And if you weren't here last week, that's fine. Jesus loves you too. So that's, that's all good. Uh, we continue praying for uh, Jim, our rector, as he is teaching at Regent uh, and uh, as he's going into his second week this week, right? So uh, continue to pray for him as he's training ministers uh, for the church around the globe there in Vancouver. Also, uh, I'll just note before uh, I go into the message for today that after the service, you'll note in the program that there are some songs that we'll be singing together before our prayers of the people. Uh, and during that time, during the songs, if you yourself feel the need uh, to be prayed over, there are prayer ministers who are ready to serve you and eager to serve you right after my message and during those songs. They'll be stationed at the back of either end section. Uh, they are trained. They are confidential. They will not be reporting to anybody the contents of your conversation. They really are there to support you, to walk with you. For whatever reason you need prayer, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, financial, whatever, they would be happy to serve you by praying with you right after this sermon during the songs. My friends, we have a familiar gospel today. But there is a way to read this story that will destroy your soul. 
In fact, this is the way I fear most people read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Perhaps even many of you read it this way. Now, I admit, this is a stark way to begin a sermon on a sunny summer Sunday in July. But I do so precisely because the danger is real. And the danger is not just for people in the abstract, but it's for people like you and me. Now, this but widespread interpretation I'm talking about zeroes in on the question that prompts the parable in verse 29, and who is my neighbor? Because of this, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I know if you've grown up in church culture, you may have heard that a parable is, do you know this line? A parable is an earthly story with a, what? Anyone? Have you ever heard this? Oh, good. I'm glad it's restricted to my church tradition. I probably shouldn't fill in the blank because it's a really incomplete definition. But I often heard it said, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But the reality is, maybe more accurately, parables are earthly stories with earthly meanings. They hit us right where we are. And they're not just stories. Sometimes they're metaphors. Sometimes they're just an image or just an analogy. But in every case, what Jesus is doing with a parable has three elements. He's always trying to engage the imagination, right? I mean, he could have just answered this question, but instead he tells a story and suddenly your brain forms a picture. He engages the imagination, then that story or metaphor or whatever inspires self-examination, and then it compels a response. Always, with all of his parables, those are the three things that Jesus is doing, and certainly this story does all three. First, we find a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this is not a long journey. It's about 17 miles. But it is almost entirely downhill. It descends 3,200 feet. So more than half a mile downhill across these 17 miles. And there were all of these craggy limestone hills you had to pass through. So it was a popular place for thieves and robbers to hang out because they could hide out in these crags and then jump on an unsuspecting traveler. Such was the fate of the man in the story. He is stripped, beaten, and left half dead. The plot thickens as people begin to pass by. First, you have a priest in verse 31. These are the ones responsible for worship and sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. Then you have a Levite. The Levites assisted those priests in their responsibilities, perhaps around the, the, the practices, the, the religious practices that were going on in the temple, but they also served as singers and as what we would call police officers and as custodians. They served in a variety of roles. Both priests and Levites would have been quite familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, particularly with this command to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet both of them saw this half-dead man and walked by. Now, there's lots of speculation as to why they didn't stop. Perhaps they were needed for service somewhere. Uh, perhaps they did not want to touch a potentially dead person and thus defile themselves and keep themselves from being able to do whatever work they needed to do. We don't know. Jesus himself is going to allude to a reason in a few moments. But for now, here's what we know. Two knowledgeable people, two religious people who understood their responsibility to love their neighbor as themselves, 
looked at the half-dead man and made an assessment that justified what they did next. Walk around. Then, in verse 33, along comes a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans and the Jews were bitter enemies. There's a long history of animosity that stretched nearly a thousand years by the time Jesus is alive. So this is a long-standing animosity. Now, if Jesus wanted to use this parable just to provoke self-examination amongst the religious elite, he could have simply said, and along came a common Jewish man who knew what he was supposed to do, and here's what he did. But he didn't. He made everyone extremely uncomfortable by bringing up a Samaritan. And what prompts the Samaritan to act? Verse 33 tells us he had compassion. He had extraordinary pity. His heart was moved with mercy. That drove him to intervene on behalf of the half-dead man, to literally get his hands dirty, to step in even at the risk of being accused as the perpetrator of this crime. He's in Jewish territory. He is a Samaritan. Bitter hostility for him to even try to help exposes him as potentially the one who did this to the half-dead man. And furthermore, he did it at tremendous personal expense, using his own wine as an antiseptic and his oil as a balm. And then, what's more, verse 35, he takes out two denarii, equivalent to two full days' pay, and gave it to the innkeeper. That was enough to keep this man in the inn for three weeks. It's remarkable. A remarkable display of mercy. As the New Testament scholar Gerard Bilks summarizes in his commentary on this passage, he says, mercy stopped, stooped, and spent. The story seems straightforward enough, right? The expert asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story to say, your neighbor is anyone in need. Anyone who's been taken advantage of. Anyone you meet along life's way who's been crushed. So God's command to love is not bound by national lines or religious lines, or even the full knowledge of the reason of this person's predicament. Everyone's your neighbor, so show love to everyone. Right? Seems simple enough. And I say, if you read the parable this way, you've not only misunderstood what Jesus is doing, but that misreading could destroy your soul. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What's so wrong with that way of reading it? I mean, aren't we supposed to love everybody? Regardless of creed, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of any other differences society would point out in us? Aren't we supposed to be attentive and compassionate and generous and helpful? And that's fair. And yes, to be clear, we are supposed to do all of those things. So let's go back to the question that prompted this story in the first place. Back in verse 29. And who is my neighbor? I appreciate the fact that the ESV includes that first word, and. It indicates a continuation of the story. He doesn't just, this isn't just a random person walking up to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, who's my neighbor? He is doing, the, the man asking the question is furthering a dialogue. And who is my neighbor? What's behind that question? Why does he ask it? 
Luke tells us that he wanted to justify himself. Well, justify himself about what? Well, about Jesus' answer to the man's first question, which is back in verse 25, where we started in this reading. His first question is, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice, this man is a lawyer. That does not mean he works for a midtown law firm, okay? This person is an expert in the Mosaic law. That kind of lawyer. He knows his Bible better than any one of us does. He knows what the law says. And from his study of the law, he has concluded, there is a way for me to do certain things that guarantee fullness of life. Literally, his question reads like this. Teacher, I will inherit eternal life by doing what? And he wants Jesus to fill in the blank. What, what is in the blank that I have to do so that I can have this full life? So Jesus meets the man right where he was with that question in verse 26 and says, well, you know the law. You are a lawyer. You're an expert in the Mosaic law. How do you read it? And the expert's response is great. He summarizes all of that law in two commands, just as Jesus will in Matthew chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus validates his assumption. He commends him by saying, you've answered correctly, verse 28, do this and you will live. If you love God and neighbor, you will live forever. You will have fullness of life. There is a way to the good life through the law. That's when the expert says, and who is my neighbor? Why is he asking that question? He's asking that question because of those two commands, one is pretty clear. Love the Lord your God. Well, I know who that is. The whole Hebrew scripture tells me about who God is. But now that second one, Jesus, who does that apply to? Who am I supposed to love as I already love myself? And just as important, who is excluded? Whom am I not obligated to love if I want to love my way into eternal life? Let me quote Bilks again. Bilks writes, this man wanted, as it were, to draw a line around those he must love not holding himself responsible for anyone beyond that. He almost seems, Bilks continues, he almost seems to be anticipating Jesus to respond to his question. Lawyer, that's a brilliant question. There's no way you can worry about loving everyone. We all have our limits, right? And that's when Jesus tells his story. Instead of saying, yeah, you can draw a line and love these people like yourself, but then not all of those people. He tells a story in which two religious people, 
Two people who knew God's word, who knew that they were to love their neighbor as themselves, looked at a half-dead man and concluded they weren't obligated to do anything for that person. Just like the lawyer wanted to do, the priest and the Levite drew a line around those they were responsible to love and concluded, this is their assumption, that man falls outside of my line, so I don't have to do anything. This is what justifies their passing by on the other side. They asked the question, who is my neighbor? Looked at that man and said, well, not him, and I'm gonna go on my way. In other words, the man's question, who is my neighbor, will lead you down the path of the priest and the Levite. You can justify yourself by saying you love everyone within your circle that you've drawn, but Jesus is saying that if you want eternal life through this law, then there is no circle. No one that you can say, well, I'm not obligated to give myself up for them. Yes, there is a path to life that comes from obedience to that law. But that path is not merely hard. It's literally impossible. Because everyone is included and no one is excluded. Now, friends, if you go down this path, no doubt you'll do a lot of good. No doubt there will be poor people served, sick people healed, marginalized people brought to the center, no doubt. But friend, if you're doing that in order for you to have fullness of life, are you really doing it for them? Or are you doing it for you? And in that case, are you really showing the poor and the sick and the marginalized love? Or are you merely using them to get good marks on your resume before God? That's why I say if you go down this path, you'll destroy your own soul in the effort. It's impossible for you and me to keep this standard. That's why Jesus ends this encounter the way he does. Did you notice Jesus' question at the end of the story? Jesus does not ask, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three loved the half-dead man? He doesn't ask that. Notice that? He does not say which of these three loved that particular neighbor as himself, right? What's the question? The question he asks is, which of these three, the ESV reads here, proved to be a neighbor? But literally, it's just which of these three was a neighbor to that man? Now, that's a really strange question. See, when we hear this story, we naturally put ourselves in the shoes of the priest or of the Levite, or if we're feeling good about ourselves, the Samaritan, right? 
The religious look at a situation like this and ask the question, well, who is my neighbor? We assume, well, since I'm religious, I mean, I'm wearing a collar today, I must be religious, right? Since I'm religious, I'm the one responsible to love my neighbor. But a tension emerges. On the one hand, I can gain eternal life if I obey the law. But on the other hand, how can I love everyone? Like, I don't have enough denarii in my pocket for everybody. If I'm to keep this law, then the only way I can do it is if I put a circle around. Like, there's got to be a restriction. I can do this as long as I can limit God's law. Thus, the priest and the Levite and the lawyer and many of us who are religious justify our non-action. But Jesus, when he asked this question, who was a neighbor, he's not inviting us to put ourselves in the shoes of the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. Instead, he turns the question around, who was a neighbor? Now follow this logic. If the Samaritan was the neighbor, then who in the story was responsible to love that neighbor? The half-dead man. The half-dead man, like, if you're talking about person and neighbor, we want to think this story is person is the Samaritan, neighbor is the half-dead man. Jesus says, no. Who was the neighbor? The neighbor was the Samaritan. That means the person responsible to love the neighbor was this half-dead person. What is Jesus doing? Jesus wants the lawyer, and he wants you, and he wants me, to take off the shoes of the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. And he wants us to look through the eyes of the half-dead. In his commentary on Luke, someone many of you know well, John Mason, the founder of Christ Church Anglican here in Manhattan, wrote this. By turning the question around, Jesus invited the lawyer to put himself into the place of the man on the road. You want to find yourself in this story. It's not in one of the three people walking by. It's in this man. This puts us not in the position of benefactor, but in the position of need. Ultimately, Jesus is not comparing the expert in the law to a heartless priest or an insensitive Levite. He's not even comparing him to a compassionate Samaritan saying, now be like him. He's comparing the lawyer to the half-dead man. You see, all along, Jesus has been working from this man's fundamental assumption. Do this and live. Follow this law and you'll have fullness of life. But here's your problem and mine. We're half dead. We cannot love like the Samaritan because we've been stripped naked and beaten and left for dead. And that's the point. It's true in theory that if you always did the right thing, if you always loved God, if you always loved neighbor, you would live forever. But friends, you can't and you won't. I can't and I won't. We think that God gave us the law as a bridge to eternal life, but what Jesus is saying is that God gave us the law to show us we are lawbreakers. That we look for ways to put hedges on God's law to make it doable for us, and then we can lord it over other people. Like, well, yeah, <laughs> once you get to my spirituality, you'll understand. 
And that kind of self-righteousness nauseates God. And read Matthew 23. It's stark. His pronouncement of woe on the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites. The religious like us. Or to put it the way St. Paul does in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, through the law we become conscious of sin. So friends, is there no hope? If the expert in the law and by implication you and I are the half-dead person on the side of the road, what hope do we have? Well, friends, our hope rests in Jesus' impossible words in verse 28, do this and you will live. In other words, love God and love neighbor and you will live. Say, well, I thought those were words of condemnation. Well, yes, for us, they are. If we could keep the law, we would live, but we can't and we won't. Now, here's the hope. Someone has. And someone did. And his name is Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we have failed to live. He poured himself out in love for God and neighbor and never had a circle. You read through the Gospels, and there's never a circle where it's like, oh, you're outside this circle, I'm not going to love you. In fact, what you find Jesus doing is he's constantly shredding the circle by the people he's showing grace and mercy to, like a Samaritan woman or a Syrophoenician woman or even touching the, the funeral buyer of a dead person. He's constantly throwing the circle away and showing love to everyone. His mercy has no boundaries. It flows freely. He is the one who lived with truth and grace and compassion and friends. Then he died. He died the death we should have died, bearing in himself all of our hatred and all of our prejudice and all of our injustice, our every failure to love. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He walked out of the grave to prove that he is the righteous Savior. He rose again to usher in the recreation of all things, to make all things new, to unite humanity in himself. He walked out of the grave to give you and me, the half-dead, life. A gift, not something we have to earn or work for, because he did this, and so we live. He has done it to bring the half-dead back to life. You see, friends, the law not only makes us conscious of our sin, but it reveals our great need for someone to rescue us, for someone to walk by in our state and have compassion on us and come to us and bandage our wounds and spend all that he has. He didn't run out of denarii. There's more mercy in Jesus than there is brokenness in us. And he continues to lavish it on us and show us mercy. In mercy, Jesus, the law comes to us and says, do this and live. But in mercy, Jesus comes to us and says, you can't do this, so I have for you. And by my spirit, I bring you back to life. Friends, this is the gospel. The title of this sermon is A Fountain of Mercy. You know what the fountain of mercy is? Jesus. He is the fountain of mercy. And it is the only path to life. And once you've been brought to life, now, now you have the power 
to love your neighbor. You have the very Holy Spirit of God enlivening you to go and do likewise, to go follow your Savior. No longer living to justify yourself, no longer to like put something on a resume before God saying, did you see all the poor people I served this week? Do you like me now? Do you see all the, 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 the barriers I'm crossing, God? Do you accept me now? No, you have the freedom of children to run through those barriers, to erase all of those circles, to love freely and extravagantly according to your means. Because he's not expecting you to save yourself. He's already done that for you. No longer do we show mercy in order to gain life. We show mercy because we have new life as a gift of mercy. See, the gospel transform us, transforms us into people of radical generosity. The Spirit is not simply prompting random acts of kindness in us. The Spirit is creating in us a response of love to every person we meet. By virtue of our union with Jesus, he has put the fountain of mercy, Jesus himself, in you. Which is why Bilks concludes, the only way to become a fountain of mercy to others is to experience this fullness of mercy yourself. When God stoops down in Jesus Christ to pour out his mercy in your soul, that mercy becomes a fountain in you. Friends, Jesus did not give us the story to condemn us, but he did give it to us to warn us. And ultimately, he gave it to us to rescue us from destroying our souls with our good deeds, with what we think are our great acts of charity. But you have to humble yourself first. You have to see life from the perspective of the half-dead man. And friends, when you do, his mercy will flow to you and through you to everyone you meet. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, merciful Father, for Jesus, the fountain of mercy. And we pray that in all our distress, in all our doubt, in all our brokenness, by your Spirit, you would grant us feet to run to him to cast ourselves as we are on his inexhaustible mercy and thereby to find life and power to love as we've never loved before. We pray in his matchless name. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.